Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Hey, good morning to another episode of Chase the Vase podcast. I'm super excited to have my buddy, Tim Ryan. Tim, thank you for joining the show today. Brock, honored to be here, my brother. Man, dude, it's been a long time. I just want you to know that I think you're the longest standing guy who has pushed me off and has not joined the show yet. I think we're over a year, bro. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Here we are. Life happens. Hey, it does. And it's fast. And that was pre-COVID, so I'll, I'll blame it on that. But Tim, before I start, I always, I always throw some, some love to the first responders who were out there battling, man. I don't know if you saw it, but the Phoenix police just made an arrest of a million hills in Arizona, in Phoenix this past week, dude. It's just things that I want to talk to you about, things that I know you're a thought leader about. You are the founder of Dope to Hope. And man, you have a pretty amazing recovery story. And I just want to fire in, man. I know know we're both pressed for time, but I want to get your take on what is going on in the recovery space right now. Wow. It's like our country. Our country is divided. You're either red, you're either blue. In the recovery space, you're either harm reduction, which is just turned into a show. I mean, I'm not for opening safe injection sites because what I want to have put to an end is end overdose. Let's be real. We're never going to end overdose. Overdose is here to say addiction's alive and well. Mental health is alive and well. But what we need to do is start out with educating. We need to educate our youth on fentanyl, on addiction, on the realities of what's going on here. We don't need some kumbaya person. We don't need someone coming in sharing a drunkalogue. You know, when you're speaking to youth and high school and college students, you need to know what you're talking about and have the facts, but you need to be able to provide solutions. And Brock, we've been talking about fentanyl since I got into this eight years ago. It's just getting worse. As you just mentioned, the record drug bus, I live in Los Angeles, they're everywhere. The borders are flooded with this stuff. Fentanyl is here to stay, but we've got to educate more out of the gate. When you say educate, are you wanting to educate the kids on what it looks like, on what it smells like, the feel? I mean, or are you getting deeper into like, why are we using it? Absolutely. No, forget all that. You know, I'll explain all that. But when I walk into a high school, my wife and I, Jennifer Jimenez, who is almost 17 years sober, you know. Which nobody knows who she is. Yeah. My wife started this whole movement with Sober House on Celebrity Rehab and Sober is Sexy and all that. And, uh, you know, she's been in the trenches and we partnered up to speak and do interventions. We happen to fall in love the day we met and we do all these things together. But when Jen and I walk into a high school, every principal, every superintendent will minimize Oh, the kids smoke a little weed. There's a little drinking. And I'll say, really, watch what I do. Whether there's 800 students, 2,000, 5,000, I'll tell everybody, put your head down. Put your hand up if you have a friend that uses a vape. Every hand goes up. Put your hand up if you have a friend that smokes weed, drinks. Every hand goes up. Do you have a friend that uses or purchases illegal pills at school? Do you have friends doing Xanax bars, Percocet, Percodan, Oxycontin, Noxium? Go through that. How about heroin? How about crystal methamphetamine? Then I'll get into how many of you have lost a loved one, family member, or friend to suicide or drug overdose. 75% of the hands go up. We have a pandemic, and a lot of the students in school, they're not struggling with addiction. 
but they're going home to a mom or dad or a broken home or a brother or sister that's struggling. There's more trauma. Kids at 12, 14 years old are becoming the caretakers of the younger kids feeding. This whole thing is just out of control. But to answer your question, we need to educate on their realities. And you're at a party and you're 15 or 16 and you and your buddies are smoking a little weed. I'm an idiot to think people aren't going to like the weed we were smoking 30 years ago. You have a drink, your inhibitions are dropped. And I come up and offer you a pill and Brock offers you a line of something. You try it, it's fentanyl, you're dead. Let me ask you a question. What is so wrong with you that you need to alter your mind in the first place at 15, 16 with marijuana or alcohol? If you didn't do it, you would have never tried fentanyl. And it's really getting down and and hitting the bullying and all social media and all these other things because kids are raised on cell phones today. They don't have coping skills, life skills. When their friends are dying and committing suicide, there's so much it needs to be brought in. But that's where it starts is true education and then hitting the community at night, having the parents come in. We need everyone to be a part of this, but it's still not my neighborhood, not my backyard, and they're not involved until it affects somebody they know. How many parents have you heard, not my son? My son would never, ever do that. And then all of a sudden, worse funeral. Well, you got to understand, my son died from this. You know, my son died on my 21 month sobriety date at 20 years old by snorting two bags of heroin and eating a bar of Xanax. And the kids knew he was overdosed and his girlfriend, his friends, and they put him on the sofa, went in the basement, did more drugs, came up an hour later, he was a dead. He was dead. If those kids would have called 911, and they were all afraid to because they had drugs, but in Illinois, they have the Good Samaritan law. So if you're partying and somebody ODs, call 911. The cops will come, save their life, take the drugs, leave. Nobody gets arrested. We're not educating youth about this. They don't know these laws exist. What kids know is drug-induced homicide. If I snitch, I'm going to go get 10 years in prison. So I'm not saying anything. We've got to drop all this. Here's the beef I got with parents. Okay, I'm a parent myself, but the parents are afraid to talk to their kids. and We got to take some ownership. Because as the parents, look at what we've done. Alcohol is out of this world. The amount of consumption that we utilize in America. And why do we use alcohol? To escape, to get away. Our kids see it. We're creatures of habits. They witness what we're doing. We're trying to escape. And eventually, so are they. You know, we're the leading place for antidepressants. There's more antidepressants prescribed in the U.S. than most other countries. And so here we are. We're complaining about this huge, huge issue. But yet in our homes, we're prescribed antidepressants. We're using alcohol as a, as a substance to escape all this stuff. And so it's like, listen, at what point in time as parents do we take some responsibility? I mean, shoot, you lost your son and you're taking full responsibility and talking about it. But most parents are like, well, not my kid. Well, you're doing it in your own home to escape situations. Well, you know what else, Brock? I've been to 150 funerals. No exaggeration. I quit going and the first was my son. But the parents that want to minimize it or they want to say their kid died from natural causes. No, it was a drug overdose or or poisoning. Call it what you want. Then they want to blame. You know, I blame the disease of addiction. You know, my kid had been to treatment. He knew what to do. He chose to use again. And I can remember the cops wanted me to at the hospital after I, I dealt with, you know, seeing my dead son. And the cop took me down the hall and there was his girlfriend and two friends. And I said, who's that? I didn't know him. And he said, that's your son's girlfriend and two friends. We're charging him with drug-induced homicide. I said, no, you're not. And he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, putting them in prison is going to do nothing. I want to get them all into treatment. And that's what we did. And I think one of the kids is dead, one sober, and the other one I, I don't know about. But, you know, that's why 
In 2015 or 16, Danny Langlos and I, the chief of police in Dixon, Illinois, started the second program in the country to where someone struggling with addiction or mental health walk into a police station and ask for help. And we had them partnered with 12 treatment centers. And we started a number of these programs, but so much more needs to be done. I mean, the LA school systems here last week, Hollywood, seven kids OD to 15-year-olds dead. And now they're going to put Narcan in the schools. That's their solution. And I said, look, Narcan is a tool to save a life from an overdose. That's it. Who is going to educate these kids? They don't know. They don't know what they don't know. On the flip side, the kids are a lot smarter today. You know, they're buying everything off Craigslist, off apps, off Snapchat. You know, you need parents need to be in their kids technology and you can get software out there that mirrors it. And if you're not in their technology, parents, if you're listening, You are responsible for everything your child does until the age of 18 years old. So if they're selling drugs or doing drugs, you need to be in their technology. Because when my son died, every Facebook message and text message was drug related. And I never knew it because I wasn't into his phone. Wow, that's powerful, man. And I totally agree. But his parents were like, well, if I look at what they're doing, they're going to feel like they don't trust me. Who cares? Problem is, too many parents today, you're a parent. You're not your kid's best friend. And I'll ask parents, how many of you consider your daughter? Oh, my daughter's my best friend. I'll say, you're a bad parent. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but your daughter is not your best friend. Once she gets out of the service or starts a career or graduates college, then she can be your friend. But you need to be a parent. And unfortunately, too many parents don't know how to be parents or don't want to be parents or think they can throw money at it. People need purpose and connection. People need to be heard. We need to listen to people. And I think there's just too many people trying to put a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. You know, harm reduction, harm reduction is an utter failure. You know, I'm a guy that went to the Chicago Recovery Alliance and got clean needles and cookers. But now it's turned into we want to keep people sick. We want to keep them, you know, on Suboxone or Subutex or Methadone. Do you know how hard it is to get someone off Methadone? Because I had to go back to shooting heroin to get off it. Don't skip that, because I think the parents need to hear that. Say that again, that you had to use what to get off? I used heroin to get back off of methadone. My drug dealer, I went down and I had a bunch of heroin, and he said, Timmy, get in my car. And I wasn't shooting it at the time. I'd been doing it for about two years. I was snorting it. He drives me downtown Chicago, and he said, you see that red door? It was on Well Street. I said, what's that? He said, Timmy, that's a methadone clinic. He said, I need you to go in there and get on methadone because even though I'm your drug dealer, I like you and I'm your friend and you're doing too much drugs, you're going to die. So I went and got on methadone, went in the bathroom, snorted all the heroin, was high as a kite and got on methadone. And I had to go to the clinic every day and I got up to about 75 milligrams and I got really angry and violent on it. And I tried to quit and I got profusely sick. They don't tell you how sick you're going to get on this. And I called Ray. I said, what do I do? He said, come on downtown, get some dope. You need to go back shooting dope. And that's exactly what I did. And then I got on Suboxone and, you know, it's called medicated assisted therapy or treatment. So if you're on Subutex or Suboxone or Methadone, you need to still be working with a psychiatrist, a therapist. If you do a 12-step program, a sponsor, recovery needs to be the most important aspect of your life. And hopefully have a plan to get off because it's hard to have a spiritual awakening when your emotions are masked. Let me give you this scenario, too. Four or five years ago, Randy Grimes, who's played with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for 10 years, starting center, never missed a game, just had 13 years sober, one of my dearest friends in the world. Randy and I spoke all over the country and worked in treatment. And we were in central Illinois with the lieutenant governor. 
the lieutenant governor speaks, Randy, and then me. And she gets up and says, you know, Illinois is cutting edge of the opiate pandemic. We have $58 million for our statewide coalition. We're getting Narcan everywhere, and we're going to open methadone clinics in the rural communities. And I said, boy, this lady's got me not the right, wrong person to talk. So when I got up, I said, Lieutenant Governor, I'm going to say some things that are going to upset you. I said, please don't take them personally. You're just very uneducated about this. I said, you guys have a $58 million budget. How many people in long-term recovery are on your statewide coalition? I said, not one. You have a bunch of politicians that know absolutely nothing about substance abuse or mental health. Strike one. I said, strike two, Narcan is everywhere. You can walk into any drugstore in the state of Illinois and get it across the counter. Insurance, no insurance, whatever. I said, now you want to open methadone clinics in the rural communities. I said, what are you going to do when Johnny gets 80 milligrams of methadone and he wants to get off? Put him into detox. I said, mistake number three. I said, nowhere in the state of Illinois will anyone detox you off of methadone unless you're at 25 milligrams or less. And if you're on state insurance, it's a four to six month wait. That's your solution? I said, that's another failure. She goes, well, what's your answer? I said, take that $58 million and in northern Illinois, build a 100-bed state-of-the-art inpatient detox residential program and then bolt on a 1,000-bed peer-driven program that's uh, 12 to 18 months for men and women structured. We'll integrate them into jobs. You do it in central Illinois and southern Illinois, and there's your solution. Think I ever heard from them? No. And that's the same thing in California and everywhere else. But then on the flip side, you have these recovery advocates out there, and some are for harm reduction and this, and we're for this, and holistic, and nobody works together. All people in recovery make me sick because they bash each other. They think it's a competition. I just had a buddy of mine, Andrew Hagar, who's a hillbilly from Kentucky, barely got out of school, in and out of jail, who's in long-term recovery, runs a nonprofit, has a tattoo on his head, runs a a Medicaid, Medicare treatment program, and was asked to speak in Arkansas at the SAMHSA conference. And there were people there saying he shouldn't speak because he's a body broker, because we read this on the internet. You have people that bash you constantly because you've turned your life around. And the body brokers are in prison. To be a big name out there and to bash another person you've never picked up the phone and have a conversation with or broke bread with, it disgusts me. The recovery industry is the most disgusting industry I've ever worked in in my entire life because it's all about egos and this. There's not many people, Brock, like us that are truly in the trenches, helping the indigent, helping the people that don't have a pot to piss in. Those are the people that really need the services. And if people could come together, they never will because of egos and agendas. So I just try to stay in our lane and do our thing and and try to make a difference, you know? What's interesting, you made some points, you know, in Arizona, at least where I'm at, we can't even get Narcan in the schools. I mean, I understand that's not the first line of defense, but man, if you don't even have that in the schools, we're in trouble. I guarantee you the schools all have defibrillators. I mean, it is, Florida is just going to start, the police just start carrying Narcan. I mean, the person usually on site, you know, in a school as a principal, it should be everywhere. First responders are usually the first ones there for a, an opiate overdose. But you want to take it a step farther with the Narcan. Here's something I've been barking about for seven years. And 
Naperville, Illinois, where I lived, about 180,000 people, really nice upper middle class community, one of the top 10 towns in the country to raise a family. We started the Safe Passages or Connect for Life program at the Naperville Police Department with my partner, Rich Wasaki. We used to run the cop and the convict and we'd speak all over and Rich is a SWAT sniper, cyber crimes expert. And Brian Cunningham, who was the deputy chief of police, went over to the Woodridge Police Department to become chief. And Brian called me about six months later and he said, Tim, we got a serious issue. I said, what? He said, we had two overdoses today in Woodridge. They were both revived by Narcan, taken to Edwards Hospital in Naperville, and they were both released within two hours. He said, Tim, both of them died within 12 hours. We are putting this massive push to get Narcan everywhere. What people don't understand with fentanyl, it's not one shot. You're needing four to five to six to eight shots to bring someone 12. Dude, I've seen a guy hit 12 times. So if you think one or two things in Narcan is not going to touch fentanyl, but on top of that, if people are revived with Narcan, they should be put on a psychiatric hold immediately, five to seven days. Quit let, every time I OD'd and was brought to the hospital, I ripped out the IVs and walked right out and one got high again. If we put people on a psych hold, it's going to give us the opportunity then to get them into treatment, even mandate them. UOD are mandated to treatment for 90 days. Well, we can't force people. It's against their human nature. Look, I injected heroin, drove my car, overdosed while driving, hit two cars and put four people in the hospital, one being a nine-month-old baby. They could have all died. I was sentenced to seven years in prison. They should have sent my ass right to the psych ward. That's what I needed and should have mandated me to long-term treatment and then given me some prison time. But I was able to get into a therapeutic treatment program within my prison that saved my life. But we need a law passed. UOD, you're brought to the hospital, you're put on a cycle immediately because we're letting people leave to go back and use again. That's not a solution. That's a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Yeah, we start doing that though. Look at what the parents, like we get these kids that are overdosing, right? Now they're concerned about, you're going to put a stigma, a tag on my kid that he's been in the psych ward. You know, you could just see that. You bring up a good point. And it just came to me because a lot of these kids today aren't even drug addicts. They're experimenting. They're trying something and they're being poisoned. Big difference. Do they need a psych ward? No. Do they need education and maybe a, a therapist? Yeah. But for the hardcore addicts that are out day in and day out, they need to be. You know, why do, they, why do you think they have laws like the Marchman Act and Baker Act in Florida? You know, if someone's a harm and danger to themselves, I can call 911. The police show up. My friend's using heroin. He won't stop. They baker at you right to the psych ward. Then you can go in front of a judge and say, hey, look, my buddy Brock, he keeps using his OD and he's a harm and danger to himself. They'll charge you under the Marchman Act. Okay, you have two choices. You can go to prison for six months to a year. You can go to a four month long treatment program. What do you want to do? You go to treatment. You know, don't tell me structure doesn't work. I went to prison, a medium prison. I lost everything and had a therapeutic community, very structured. That program and my own efforts and Big Perk Micelli saved my life through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I did the work, you know. It's so goddamn frustrating, Brock, because people are just dying at record numbers and it's like people don't care about it anymore. I have to get into the mind of an addict, right? You're 40 years, you've been using heroin for that long. You're taking the risk, you know what you're getting into, you're there. But these youngsters, man, that are taking this fentanyl, and they're taking a one-time poisoning, dying. It's like, wait a minute, we've got to figure something out to where they don't need that, right? We're missing somewhere where a kid feels like, I need to take this pill to make myself feel better. Now, is it peer pressure? I have no idea. They're in that moment and they're being, but all the parents I'm talking to, 
it wasn't peer pressure. It was a kid going through some emotional baggage. He's struggling at home. He's struggling at school. He's struggling with sports. He just wants that pill to escape for a minute. Here's the crazy thing, Tim. The kids are overdosing in their homes. I believe the numbers right now are 66% of the youth being found are found in their own home overdosed. I mean, fentanyl overdoses here between 10 to 18-year-olds in L.A. County is up 650% in the past two years. We have a pandemic within a pandemic right here, and it's kumbaya, let's talk about Trump and Biden, and that we're, we're losing an entire generation. I asked you before if you saw this big article that came out, and Senator Chuck Schumer, he wants $290 million to help fight deadly fentanyl. Okay, $290 million. We just spent $49 billion the Ukraine. You know, we're talking billions. But $290 million could go a long way in the fentanyl epidemic. Where's that money going to go? That's my question. Yeah, well, where did all the money from Purdue Pharma go? And it goes down. But is it going to recovery organizations like the McShin Foundation or Oaks Recovery, these really solid, stellar, peer-driven programs for the indigent? That's where that money needs to be going. And and into the schools and education where there's just too many people involved that are not brought to the table because they've got their own agendas. And it's really sad. It, it breaks my heart for these advocates out here that are doing their things for ego and pride and look at me and look at me. Well, one last person you helped, you know? I'm going to say yes, 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 yes. We just had a mayor here in Mesa, Arizona. He's our mayor. Okay, I live in Mesa. And he just went on CNN claiming how he's loving what Biden's doing at the border and all this. But here's the interesting part. The guy has no clue about his own community. I'm going to say that out loud. Like, I'm in the community. I'm at the parks on a daily basis. And his office is five minutes from one of the biggest leading parks. And we just had a big article about all the people dying here. It's like, wait a minute. You're okay with that. But within your own community, it's the highest death rate ever in overdose. Highest kids dying of fentanyl, and yet we're doing a good job because he's not an addict. He's not looking at it from our perspective. He's looking at it from a political agenda. You know, there was some great people out there. I, you know, I was invited to the 2016 State of the Union address by Congressman Bill Foster and Senator Dick Durbin is a huge supporter of what we do. And I remember I talked with another congressman and he's I won't mention his name. He said, look, Tim, I can take you to Congress. I'll get you to speak for 20 minutes. You are going to get a standing ovation. And when you walk out of that room, everybody's going to forget about you that quick because they have their own agendas. It's as simple as that. And politicians have no business trying to be the subject matter expert on the pandemic here. But unfortunately, we have a lot of clinical people that have studied for 10, 20, 30 years and have a bunch of things behind their name. And they can talk about, you know, all these deep dives. They've never been an addict. They truly don't know what it's like. I've seen more people get help with real talk and real solutions and let's work on your feelings and feelings and all that matter. But the problem with these kids in the schools today, Brock, is they don't know how to manage their emotions because ask a kid how much time they spend on technology in a phone. They don't make phone calls. They text, they message, they take a picture, they do this. They don't know how to communicate anymore. Kids don't know how to go out and work and make $2 an hour and be grateful to have it. You know, they're all in this. We've raised an entitled generation. There's more acronyms for people today 
than I've ever friggin' heard of, which is just causing more chaos. And our country's going real quick. And the, the cartels see it. And they're flooding the streets. They're flooding it. They love the chaos in America right now. That's the question. That's why I want to talk to you, Tim, is what do people like us do? What do people that are hearing these podcasts that you're putting on, that I'm putting on, how do we come together and make noise? Well, I've been making noise forever. You have. We can make all the noise we want. I don't know, Brock, because it's frustrating. I've thought of walking away from all this. I don't need the headaches. I don't need a phone call saying, you know, Tim, thanks everything you and your wife did, but our, our son died. You know, I don't know. We can make the noise, but I think more people need to come together because if you've got cash, you've got great insurance, you can get all the help you want. But a lot of people don't. And those are the people that really need the help. And how are we getting to them? How are we getting into these minority communities? And, you know, I'll give you a perfect scenario. I know a lot of affiliated gang members because I rolled with them and I've been in prison with them. And when I got out of prison, a buddy of mine, I'll call him Michi. Michi was with the Vice Lords in Chicago. So I called Michi and I said, Michi, I want you to get me some active gang members. And my son and I are going to come down to Chicago and interview him. He's like, no problem. So we interviewed uh, a gangster disciple, a vice lord, a Latin king, and one other individual. Black was 32 years old. He said, look, Tim, I was raised in the foster care system. I lived in 18 foster homes. I was molested in six of them. I ran away at 15. I have no education. I have a wife. I, I have three kids. I smoke weed and I drink. That's it. But I sell drugs for a living because I can go out and sell cocaine and heroin in two hours and make more money than you make in a week. He said, if I could move to Naperville, Illinois, and somebody would give a black man with 12-time convicted felon an opportunity for a job, I'd take it in a minute because I don't want my kids living here. But who's going to take a bet on me? I totally understand why he does what he does. You know? That's all they know. The other gentleman had never left a 10-block radius. He is 52 years old. He had never been to downtown Chicago. He had never been to Navy Pier, Lake Michigan. He had never left a 10-block radius, you know, south side of Chicago. There's no hope in these communities. There's no jobs. There's no rec centers for the kids anymore. We glorify being divorced parents. And, you know, these kids in the inner city have nobody to look up to, so they join the gang. I get it, you know? We need more outs for people. We need more solutions. We need to believe in people more. We need to quit being so judgmental and bashing this. I don't care what other people do, Brock. I stay in my lane and I do what we do and, and help as many as we can. But I'm only one person. My wife's only one person. But you guys are going out and you're on the stage. You're talking, man. You guys are, I know, first of all, I appreciate what you guys are doing because I see it. I understand the frustration. There's days I'm like, I throw my hands up like, I hate this. You know, because it's not easy. It's not glamorous, you know? Well, people don't see. Last week, I probably fired off 20 phone calls, emails, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn to the L.A. County school superintendent because of these deaths and trying to meet the man. And then Fox News says, come on, Tim, we'll do a story. Not a work, not a peep, not a chime. We've been in the trenches for almost nine years. We know what works. We know what we can do to help here. And they won't even set a meeting. You can't even get a meeting to go into the schools to speak. I'm blown away. It's like they're afraid to have us come in and, and talk about what's happening. And when we come in and speak, you can hear a pin drop. When you have kids giving you a standing ovation and asking for your Instagram so they can message you. The last high school my wife and I walked out of, 
Uh, there's 2,500 students between sixth graders to seniors in high schools. Jennifer received over 800 Instagram messages. And the last one was a girl at, I don't know, one fifteen in the morning, an 11-year-old girl by the name of Lily. And Jennifer said, Lily said, Jen, uh, she wanted to thank Jen and I for coming in, but she said, you spoke my story today. You know, I have no one to talk to. And she's like, Lily, why are you messaging me at one fifteen, and why aren't you sleeping? She said, you're the first person that heard me today. A lot of these schools have, they have guidance counselors. They don't have social workers. They don't have mental health counselors. They don't have substance abuse therapists. We need those in every school on top of the school resource officers. And we need to be working together. And why aren't these kids having their own peer groups talking about all these issues in school? Oh, because we don't have them? Yeah, you do have them. Let's get the, what's the, the saying I'm looking for? You know, the, the ghost, get it out of here. Just talk. It's reality. It's here. People still got their heads in the sand, man. What's interesting is I'm good friends with a few of the SROs here in Arizona, the school resource officers, and they're taking the place. They're the ones doing the counseling. You know, they're having the kids come in. The kids want to talk to them about their family and they don't want them arrested, but there's nobody in the school to talk to them. It's not funny, but when my son died, his girlfriend's father was a Cook County Sheriff, a jump out boy. So he's out jumping out, popping all the heroin kids. So all of a sudden he started calling me. He's like, yo, Tim, it's Conrad. Uh, I just got this. 22-year-old kid, he's got 10 bags of heroin. I'm like, put him on the phone. I'd be like, dude, you got two choices right now. That man is going to arrest you and charge you with possession of heroin, or you can wait for me to show up at the police station. I'm going to put you in treatment. He's like, get your ass down here. Let's go. I'm ready to go to treatment. And it started working. And I started having law enforcement helping us here. That's the way we need to do this. We need to shift it and get more people involved here and we're getting there, but there's so many deaths, so much drugs flooding, and I think people are panicking. Yeah, I think everybody's panicking because there's no slow. I mean, when you're seeing a traffic stop of a million pills, that's unheard of. So let's talk about this, though, Brock. To Larry County, California, I spoke there four years ago, largest drug court in the country. They had 2,500 people in the audience. Great program. Well, then the judge that brought me in got voted out. About six months ago, they arrested two undocumented individuals from Mexico with 25,000 fentanyl pills. They were released two days later on their signature because they're not a flight risk. Are you insane? That's a problem. You know, these laws in California, the homelessness is through the roof. 90% of the homeless people are severe addicts or mental health. There's nothing for them. I could walk into any store in California right now and shoplift $900 a day worth of items, and it's a ticket. That's it. I can go on my street and shoot up heroin and shoot up cocaine and meth. I'm allowed to do that. I can have, I think, up to five grams of heroin on me or meth, and it's a ticket. That's our solution? That's harm reduction. I'm with you. I I really, really struggle. We got to come up with something better, man. Harm reduction is, I mean, we just got to come up with something better. Well, with, uh, oh, it stops the spread of AIDS and HIV. Stop saying that. There is no AIDS spread. You can take a pill if you have AIDS and you can live the rest of your life comfortably. There is no spread of hep C and all this. You're going to let a girl who's selling her body to support a drug habit come to your safe injection site so she can shoot up drugs and not die, but then she can go out and sell her ass another 12 times be sexually abused in more severe trauma to come back and shoot up again. That's your solution that it's a failure. And never offering support. 
never offering mental health about no support other than here, let me give you a clean needle. Well, I started looking at these clinics that were popping up, specializing in M-A-T-I-O-P, where you got to be on Suboxone or Methadone. So I had a buddy of mine that was a hardcore heroin addict. I sent him to treatment again. He did uh, 30 days, came back, went to one of these programs for IOP. He did IOP intensive outpatient for 90 days. And they said, sir, we're concerned that you're going to relapse. So you either need to get on Suboxone or Methadone to stay in our IOP program. And he said, I am four months clean and sober. I have a sponsor. I'm working the steps. I'm doing this. And they said, well, you can no longer be here. The reason, that's not the truth. The reason is they needed him to get on Suboxone or Methadone so they could keep billing the insurance because they're keeping these people in their IOPs up to two years. Don't tell me it's about the money. It's all about the money. We've hit it today. Let's leave this on a good note, if you don't mind. I want to know what you're doing. Talk to me more about this Dope to Hope. I love it. I love what you and your wife are doing. Tell us how to get a hold of you and give us a positive. Yeah, you know, when I walked out of prison, I, I started a number of family support groups. So I had the parents or loved ones come with the person struggling. Because if it's a family disease, let's have everyone. I, I ran a nonprofit called Amanda Recovery Foundation where we helped indigent people. And I stumbled into working in treatment and speaking then I started Dope to Hope, and my wife, Jennifer Amenes, is my partner, and, and we speak nationwide, internationally, into junior high schools, high schools, colleges, corporations. We do consulting within the substance and mental health field. We do interventions. We run a podcast. I'm an author. My wife and I have a couple reality shows back in the mix because she's a supermodel and an actress. And you might know Jennifer from Sober House, Celebrity Rehab, Beverly Hills Housewives, Blow. And we're just here in the solution. We run our own podcast called The Tim and Jen Show, which will be kicking up again in a couple more weeks on all platforms. And if people want to find us, go to www.dopetohope.com, dopetohope.com. You know, we're just trying to do what we can to help. You know, I can get caught up in all the, the this and that, but you got to pick and choose your battles too. I just want to help people. That's it. I want to educate you and I, Brock. We're sick of burying people. I like seeing people, you know, get 30 days sober, 60 days. You know, I do a 12-step base meeting in the Palisades on Saturday morning with 250 men in person. And you should hear that room when somebody says, I have a year clean and sober. I mean, it's a standing ovation for two minutes. Don't tell me this recovery doesn't work. So, you know, we can get frustrated. We'll never end this. We just need to educate people so they never make the choice or bad decision to try something, trying to numb a damn feeling or feel normal in their own skin. We got to try to get people to be comfortable in the uncomfortable and know this feeling will pass in time and how to build a core group of people that you can call. Hey, Brock, it's Tim, man. I'm really struggling. I can talk to you for five minutes, hang up and feel better. That's what we need to bring people together for. And that's what it's all about because of vessels like you, Brock, doing what you do. This is one of my favorites, Tim. I, I know that you're passionate about what you're doing. Thank you for being on the show, Chase the Base. And please keep chasing that, man. Keep doing what you're doing. We love it. We're putting together, I don't know if you know, we are putting on a cool victory recovery, a victory vision. We're trying to help people do just that. Just see the vision of what's next. Uh, it's big, man. It's out there and together. We fall, we fight, we overcome, man. That's all we can say. Thanks for being here, brother. 
Amen, my brother. Brock, I love you. Thank you. And I look forward to getting this pushed out there. We'll get Jen on your show next, okay? Yeah, let's go. Thank you, brother. Be well, Brock. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcasts to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.